As we turn to God's word now, let me lead us in prayer. Father God, we thank and praise you for your word. Thank you that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. We ask now that you would revive our souls and make us wise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please do pick up a Bible and Isaiah chapter 1, verses 21 to 31 would be an especially useful place to turn. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 21 to 31. If you're new to St. John's, at the end of our Bible reading, we say, this is the word of the Lord, and altogether we say, thanks be to God. So Isaiah chapter 1, and I am going to read verses 21 through to verse 31 for us. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. They shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tinder, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I don't know if you um, saw the headlines, but uh, once again, another high-profile pastor has had to step down due to marital unfaithfulness. It seems we can't get through another month without one more name being added to the Hall of Shame. Now, my aim isn't to rake over the coals. There but for the grace of God goes every single one of us. Now, my point this morning is to highlight just how awful unfaithfulness is. It's right they step down, isn't it? Of course they can't carry on. And then there's the fallout. I can't begin to imagine the pain in that family. There's something especially hurtful about betraying someone's trust, isn't there? Maybe we've felt it in the past. And it's made all the worse when there's someone we trusted. We were used to them being faithful. And it's a pain God knows. Just look how this passage begins again. It is truly shocking, isn't it? How the faithful city has become a whore. 
Really, it could be a question. How has this happened? There's shock. There's outrage. It's a scandal. Last week, we learned what the nation was like, verse 4. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord, despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. But here we find out it hasn't always been the case. God's people have fallen from a great height. It wasn't always this way. And incredibly, it won't always be this way. It's what we see in verses 21 to 26. It's a poem all about two cities. If you've got an outline in front of you, you'll see it's the first big theme this morning. Two cities. So often in the Old Testament, high emotions are expressed in tight poetry. It's meant to make us feel the tension even more. Rather than just saying God's angry with his people for their unfaithfulness, we're given word pictures and imagery. Isaiah deliberately gives us this in a poem. And the two cities are really one city contrasted. The faithful city versus the unfaithful city. Just look with me again to verse 21. How the the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Can we see the contaminating corruption going on here? Isaiah begins with a horrifying image of a wife selling herself. But then he layers it up. There's silver becoming worthless waste, just dross. And then the finest wine getting watered down. And by verse 23, we see unfaithfulness to God is shown in unfaithfulness to people. And it's not just an issue for the capital city, Jerusalem. At the moment, there's something of a north-south divide in the UK, or at least in England, over the whole response to COVID, isn't there? Some people think London and the government are just too far removed. But also, we know how the capital city can represent the whole nation. We can think back to the London Olympics back in uh, 2012. They really were the whole country hosting the Games, weren't they? Events all over the place. And even today, the government in London decide what affects the whole country, whether we agree with it or not. So Jerusalem, the city Isaiah is talking about, is really representative of the whole nation. And it's made all the more tragic because of the heights from which Jerusalem have fallen. Did we spot that in verse 21? What the city was is compared to what the city is like now. But we may well ask, well, when exactly was she full of justice? When did righteousness lodge in her? It must be places like 2 Samuel chapter 8. King David wins victory after victory after victory. And then we read this. David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Or we could read of Solomon's reign in 2 Chronicles 8 and 9, full of justice. You see, for once, the good old days really were the good old days. 
But righteousness was never a permanent resident, merely a lodger, verse 21. No, now it's systemic injustice and oppression. Often people point out how the Bible's been used to oppress and subjugate. And unfortunately, far too often people have misused and abused Scripture for sinful ends. But when we read the Bible right, when we handle Scripture correctly, it is inescapable that God is concerned for justice. Here it is straight up unacceptable for orphans and widows to be overlooked amongst God's people. Injustice reigns as the rulers run after bribes. It's meant to shock us. God's people are exposed. Isaiah lays out the charge in verses 21 to 23, so there can only be one outcome. Jerusalem deserves to get smashed. We're expecting judgment. And it makes what follows a bit of a puzzle. Verses 24 to 26 are like the second half of this mini poem. And we get this strange, unexpected, purifying punishment. A purifying punishment. It kicks off with a terrifying declaration, verse 24. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. The doubling, tripling up of God's name evokes massive monumental power. The Lord declares, the Lord of hosts of the armies, the mighty, powerful one of Israel. God, in his awesome, unbridled, majestic power, speaks. And then it gets even worse in verse 25. I will turn my hand against you. This is where things really escalate. It's the picture of holding someone by the scruff of their neck and about to punch their lights out. They're they're flinching already or holding up the back of your hand, ready to slap someone on the face. Except, this is God's settled, just anger, not a fit of rage. And we find out God's enemies, his foes, are you. But then comes the curveball. We're expecting revenge and retribution, but we get restoration. I will turn my hand against you, verse 25, and will smelt away your dross as with lye, and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counsellors as at the beginning. Afterwards you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Now we get a comparison with what the city will be like in the future. And the end result is a city of righteousness. Once again, Jerusalem will be the faithful city. Do you see how verse 26 is a mirror with verse 21? Lost faithfulness, justice, and righteousness become restored faithfulness, justice, and righteousness. It's as at the first, as at the beginning, just like the good old days. But how will God bring all of this about? How will he affect this change? Well, in verse 25, it's a fiery refining, isn't it? It's a purifying punishment, or it's restoration through refining. And if, like me, you don't have a clue what lie is, I had to look it up. It is a a strong cleaning agent. 
God's going to purge Jerusalem of her rubbish leaders. It's going to be total cleansing. He's going to restore proper, godly leadership. It's a theme Isaiah keeps coming back to. Chapter 9, verse 7. We read of one to come who will establish and uphold the throne of David with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Or or chapter 32, verse 1. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Or chapter 60, verse 21. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. But again, how? We were left with the question last week, well, how can God wash us white as snow? And now this week, how can God punish and purify at the same time, in the same act? And how can he also establish his perfect king and restore godly leadership? Well, Isaiah will answer it for us as we read on. And when we get to the New Testament, we will see one day, one decisive act of God where he pours out his judgment and at the same time purifies a people for himself. And even as he does so, his perfect forever king is crowned. It is just brilliant how how the whole Bible fits together. It is a library of 66 books, but there is clearly one author behind it all. And at the center stands Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. It is the only possible solution to how God can punish and purify at the same time. As I've been looking over these verses this week, it's left me marveling at the sweep of God's salvation plan. Here, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, we have God telling his people what he's going to do. And then in Christ, at the cross, God purifies his unfaithful people through judgment. We serve such a gracious, loving, overwhelmingly kind God. Jesus is such a long-awaited, perfect saviour. He is the king we should all want and the king we also desperately need. If this is new to you, please do sign up to the Christianity Explored course starting soon. It's a brilliant opportunity to see how the Bible points us to Jesus. It's looking at Mark's gospel, but in a sense, it could be looking at Isaiah as well. Both expose how much we deserve God's judgment. But they also show us how God has acted decisively in pouring out the judgment we deserve on Jesus at the cross. So we might be washed clean. Jesus willingly passed through the fires of God's justice to give us a righteousness we don't deserve. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And if we have been purified by God through the cross, let's praise him and let's live like it. Back in verse 23, one of the symptoms of unfaithfulness to God was a lack of care for the fatherless and widows. But how can we show proper care for the orphans and widows? I think it'll involve real practical love for single parents in the local church. It could mean supporting and sponsoring a child through a charity like Compassion. It definitely requires listening to Jesus, the perfect judge, and going his ways. Looking back from 
our perspective. We know how God solves this puzzle. But for those in Isaiah's day, there were still more questions. How exactly will God do this? What does it involve? And so in verses 27 to 31, we get God's comment on the poem of verses 21 to 26. There's a bit more flesh on the bones of how he will purify people for himself through judgment. But there's also a lot of the same themes coming up again, to keep ramming it home. So secondly, this morning, two certainties. Verses 27 to 31, two certainties. As the passage was read, did we pick up on how many times in verses 27 to 31 something shall come to pass? Here's what's going to happen. And there are only two outcomes. And we get the first in verse 27, and the repentant redeemed. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. For God to turn a faithless city into a faithful city, it's going to involve redemption in line with justice and repentance in line with righteousness. But it begs the question, whose justice and whose righteousness? Is it the character of those who God redeems? Is it a description of those who return? I think more likely it's how God goes about redeeming. He redeems in justice. It's God's weapon of choice, as it were. And righteousness is how God can bring back the repentant. It's not that they become righteous as they return, because they return. No, rather, in righteousness, God can bring a people back to himself. If one of my children runs away, if they're listening, I'm not suggesting this as an idea, but if they run away and you hear they were returned by car, if you know them, you'll know they're not old enough to drive themselves back by car. I hope that is obvious. No, if Claire and I go out searching the streets for them, find them, and put them in the backseat of the car and drive them home, that is how they're brought back by car. The whole book of Isaiah makes clear God's people are not going to return on the basis of their own righteousness. What does he say in chapter 64, verse 6? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. It has to be God's righteousness. He needs to purchase a people for himself in justice. He needs to bring a people back to himself in righteousness. It's crying out for, for chapter 53. We were looking at it just earlier as we were singing. Perhaps the clearest description of the cross in the Old Testament. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's what redemption is, rescuing through the payment of a price. Again, it's what we've been looking at in Romans recently, isn't it? How God can righteously make unrighteous people right with him. God will redeem a people justly. But repentance is still necessary. It's all God's work, but we still need to return to him. That's what repentance means, turning back to God. Perhaps you're listening in and you're someone who's very familiar 
with Christian things. You believe what the Bible says. You know Jesus is God. You know you need his death on the cross to deal with God's anger at our rebellion. But you still need to repent, to come home, so to speak. Well, don't delay. Repentance doesn't earn God's favor, but it is necessary to receive it. And as we read on, we'll learn quite how vital and urgent repentance is. Because so far, we've only looked at one outcome, haven't we? One certainty. But there are two, aren't there? And in verses 28 to 31, it is the sobering reality of rebels raised. Rebels and sinners will be broken and burned up. Verse 28, but rebels and sinners shall be broken together. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. And you shall blush for the gardens that you've chosen, for you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tinder and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Now, we're not told quite as much as we might like here. What exactly are these oaks they desire? And what are these gardens? Is it straight-up idol worship? Or are they metaphors for trusting in their own strength and power, or both? Perhaps we can answer as we read on in Isaiah. What's clear is they'll be exposed. There's shame and disgrace in verse 29. Shame is an appropriate response, but it's not a sufficient response. Feeling bad about sin clearly isn't the same as repentance that we mustn't confuse the two. In verse 30, they'll be withered and dried up. It's like the opposite of Psalm 1. Do you remember the tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither? Not so for these rebels and sinners. And now by verse 29, rebels and sinners isn't just the princes, the leaders, but you. Everyone is guilty. And then in verse 31, ultimately, they will be utterly burned up. Already in verse 26, we've been told they'll be consumed. But verse 31 gives a sense of how self-destructive it is to worship anything or anyone other than the one true Lord God. Again, Isaiah is using fire imagery, but this time with a very different outcome. It's not burnishing, but burning up. There's no hope, is there? None to quench them. We're getting to the time of year when people start to have fires. I don't know what your fire lighter of choice is. But in verse 31, the strong, the self-sufficient are like lint. They're the dry kindling you get ready first. And his work is a match. Preachers have been labeled in the past as being all fire and brimstone. And sure, some have misrepresented the God of love and grace and mercy. But there's no sidestepping the fact that those who consistently oppose God and live for themselves will face his awful, settled, just, inescapable wrath. I say inescapable, but it is only inescapable then. The reason Isaiah is writing this is to call his fellow Israelites back to God. Now we'll find out they will refuse, but it doesn't stop the fact that this is an appeal. We see the call right in the center. 
repent. There is redemption and restoration for any and all who will come back to God. And the cross has made it possible. Whether for the first time or the thousandth time, we need to keep turning back to God through Jesus Christ. And with everything going on at the moment, we need to remember quite how high the stakes are. If this is true, if there really are only two certainties, how can we possibly keep this to ourselves? If God has made a way to return to him and receive righteousness, is this not the best news ever? Doesn't it give us a burning desire to call any who will listen back to God in repentance? But we must also live as those who've been redeemed, who've been restored. If you're a Christian listening in this morning, you are part of the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Are we living like it? In the New Testament, in his second letter, Peter picks up the theme of God's judging, purifying fire, leading to God's people dwelling in righteousness. And for us, it's still a time we're looking forward to, just like those in Isaiah's day. But it's a future reality to shape our everyday living. He says this, and we'll close with these words. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray together. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these words. Thank you for your desire to restore a people for yourself, to refine them, to bring them back to you. Thank you that you have achieved this through the cross. Thank you that you have established your perfect godly leader in the person of Jesus through his death and resurrection. We pray that we would all be those who come to you for cleansing, who come to the cross and are washed clean, purified and refined. And we pray that we would live as those who are part of the faithful city, living for Jesus and declaring his praises. In his name we pray. Amen.